The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. It's Berlin Art Week and unusually for 2020, art fairs, a biennale and a range of exhibitions are all opening at once in the German capital. But is Berlin still the thriving art centre it's been over the last two decades? I talked to the Canadian artist and adoptive Berliner A.A. Bronson about participating in one of the big shows opening this week at the legendary Bergein nightclub. And we hear from the veteran art dealer Thomas Schulter about Berlin's return to normality. And in this episode's Work of the Week, I talked to the artist Jade Fadadutami about an untitled painting by Laura Owens in the Tate Collection. Before all that, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime, with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper, and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now, the artist A.A. Bronson was a member of the seminal Canadian artist collective General Idea, known for its radical interventions into the art world through AIDS activism, institutional critique and queer theory, among other things. After spells in Toronto and New York, Bronson has lived in Berlin for some years and is showing in Berlin Art Week as one of 80 artists in the show Studio Berlin in the famous nightclub Bergein. I spoke to A.A. about the show, his troubling work in it and about how he feels about Berlin as an art centre today. A.A., you're showing right now in Berlin in the Bergein Club and I wanted to get a sense of what Bergein means to Berliners and to people in Berlin because it's symbolic in in the sense that it connects the art community and the nightclub community and those two things are very important in terms of the cultural community of Berlin, right? Uh, Yes, the art community, the club community and the queer community. It's a powerhouse and it's a history sort of stands in that all, for all that's wild and wonderful about Berlin. I mean, it's legendary, so I'm presuming that many of your many of your audience already know more about it than I do, probably. Is it somewhere like, is it a place that you've been to? Is it a club that attracts people from across the sort of cultural sphere of Berlin? Berlin is a wonderful place, and, and Bergheim reflects that in many ways. So, for example, it's not ageist. So as a 74-year-old man, I can go and, you know, the doorman will let me in uh, while throwing out a 24-year-old hipster. And that's a wonderful thing, you know, for an old person. It's wonderful to be able to feel you have access uh, in a way that I, I wouldn't have in New York, you know. And, you know, there's different parts to it. There's the Panorama Bar, which is uh, a, a, a different atmosphere than the main club. And then there's a Lab, which is a gay sex club on the ground floor as well. Um, and uh, then they have an enorm- this enormous space in the back, which is kind of the center of this exhibition, uh, which is only used for special projects. It's otherwise uh, normally closed. And can you say something about the work that you're showing in, in that in the exhibition because it's called Studio Berlin and we're led to believe that some of the works but not all of them is that right are made during lockdown but others are existing works this was not made during lockdown it was made before uh it's called White Flag it's an enormous um 
about five meter long American flag, uh, which I purchased uh, just after 9-11 on eBay when I was living in New York. I was below 14th Street. I was in, I was in the 9-11 uh, territory. And ever since that time, I w had wanted to make a series of American flags, which are, are distressed in the sense that they're covered with the very same sort of greasy, strange dust that covered all of downtown Manhattan at that time. And I was finally able to carry those out here. And, uh, you know, it's having also done so much work about the AIDS pandemic and now living through the corona, uh, the, the COVID pandemic as well. It's uh, all these all these human tragedies uh, flow together rather nicely. And the, the flag is like a gigantic emblem for some sort of uh, imperialist decay, I think. And uh, uh, it, uh, it, I don't know why it works very well in this exhibition. It's, it feels like a centerpiece to me. Uh, and they very kindly put it in, uh, in a, a, a very uh, grand location in the middle of the Great Hall. And I'm very, very happy to see it there. Is it right that there's also a symbolic use of white in terms of a relationship to a flower that's used in cemeteries in Europe as well? The white iris, white flag, is a plant that I've worked with a lot. It's a, first of all, it's a poisonous plant, and I'm, I'm very fond of poisonous plants. They're usually related not only to poisons, but to medicines and to the whole subject of health and to death and so on. But the white flag was a traditional flower in... Uh, Arabic uh, cemeteries and North African cemeteries, and it, it's a it's a plant that migrated with the Muslim people. So it migrated to Spain, and it migrated to Europe as a whole. And here, of course, is a huge Muslim uh, community with the uh, especially the Turkish and Syrian and so on and so forth. And uh, there's a big Muslim uh, cemetery here. I'd planned a whole installation that I never did using that white flower. And I've worked, I've worked a lot with, uh, I've worked a lot with white. Also with the Christmas rose, which is also a poisonous plant, which blooms at totally the wrong time of year. It blooms at Christmas. And, um, and uh, it's a flower associated with witchcraft and so on in Northern Europe. Um, so yes, I've, I've worked a lot with white and, and with white plants especially. I mean, t talking about the sort of entropy of the end of imperialism, etc., it, it seems to me that, again, the timing of showing this now in the context of coronavirus, which is obviously just, you know, I mean, as we speak, I think 185,000 people have died in the US, for instance. It, it, you know, it, it seems such a pertinent image now. Is that also part of your thinking about showing it at this moment? Yes, well, you know, it's so amazing that the, actually on 9-11 itself, people couldn't believe that 3,500 Americans had died in one day. Now 3,500 is nothing, you know, like it's like a drop in the bucket. Uh, the world has changed indeed. I feel very, you know, I lived in New York for a very long time. I feel very lucky indeed to be here in Berlin, uh, where the death rate is so low and uh, the, the, uh, the people take the disease so seriously and uh, the medical system is so amazingly good for everybody, not just for the few. And, uh, and there's so much space and light. Uh, Germans love space and light and the architecture is planned um, is to give everybody as much space and light as possible, no matter how poor you are or, 
or how rich. Um, it's it, If I had to be anywhere during the pandemic, I think I would have chosen Berlin anyway. Can I say it's been a pleasure to be in Berlin in the pandemic? I don't know whether that's the right way to put it, put it but in a way it has been. One of the reasons we're, we're talking about Berlin on the podcast this week is because we wanted to take, in a way, take a, 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 the temperature of Berlin now because we know that certain collections are moving on. We've heard that mm. it's becoming harder for artists to live there. And 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 you, as, a, as somebody who's, who's adopted Berlin as their home, I just wondered how you feel about Berlin now. I mean, from what you're saying there, it seems you're still attached to it and, and, it, and it still has a great meaning for you to be there. Oh, you know, it's like... Already by 1980, the artists in New York were saying New York was over, you know. I mean, it's, pretty, it's kind of the same. It's really, it's really a great place for artists. It continues to be a great place for artists, you know. It was one of the great cities of the world in the 1920s, and it's roaring back to that now. And I don't, I don't think that's a problem, especially with the kind of tenant controls and so on that are in place here. It may never be as cheap as it was in the 1990s, but it's... It's a very easy place for artists to congregate, and they do congregate here from all over the world. It's a wonderful artist community here. One of the things that always struck me about you being there was your your entire career has been about collaboration. And one of the things that we often hear about Berlin is this cross-pollination of the arts, but also cross-pollination between artists, visual artists. There's a sense of openness about collaboration there. And was that, an in, was that part of your instinct to be there? Well, it's true. There's a kind of collaborative nature that's natural here. Maybe that also comes out of the strength of the theater scene here as well. What I've noticed about Berlin is how many young people come here. And they tend to be young people who don't know really what they're doing and want to figure it out. So they're people who are willing to take risks. And after the AIDS after the, the height of the AIDS pandemic, you know, basically for my generation, all the risk takers died. And, there were, and my generation became very safe after that. Uh, so it's really refreshing to be here in Berlin where there are so many young risk takers. I don't mean necessarily sexually, although that's true too. Uh, but just in their approach to life and to making art, you know, there's, there's, there's an openness to experimentation here which I don't find really anywhere in North America. Can you say something about about the experience of lockdown in the last few months for you? Because as you know, as we were just saying, you know, the, the collaboration is at the heart of what you do. Your art is about social engagement. It's about being with people. So, so how how has the last few months been for you? Well, in a way, difficult because um, I was supposed to have an exhibition in New York in April and that uh, I had to cancel my trip, of course. And and also I was supposed to be doing um, something called a public apology to Siksika Nation uh, uh, on the Siksika Reserve in, uh, in Alberta, Canada, uh, which is a kind of performance, uh, uh, an apology on behalf of my ancestors uh, to the Siksika people. Um, who live um, on the Siksika Nation outside of Calgary. So that also has been uh, put on hold. At the same time, I'm working on a, a major retrospective at the National Gallery of Canada, which will tour also to the US and Europe. And uh, the catalog for that, also a major book about my own work that's coming from the Patrick Frey, the publisher in Zurich. 
And so, in a way, it's if you're going to choose any time to have to be housebound, this was a good time because I can do 90% of what I need to do by Zoom. It's really, it's really uh, not a problem working on catalogs and exhibition planning. Um, as far as making art, I basically haven't really made any art at all during this period. And uh, I, I think for some artists, it's the opposite because they, you know, they might have to focus on small scale art, but in they can focus and they can just produce their work because in a way there's nothing else to do except produce your work. Um, but, uh, but for me, it hasn't been like that. As a 74 year old, in a way, my life hasn't changed much because I hardly leave the apartment anyway. Uh, but, uh, but it does, it is also isolating for everybody, I think. And that's, that's included me. I'm lucky to have my husband here with me, so I haven't been totally alone. It's interesting you say about, about this idea that artists, you know, it's just an opportunity now to just take whatever you ever chance you can to make work. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that a lot of us have been talking about is, you know, the art, the art world, and especially the art market was just moving at such an unsustainable rate absolutely and is this is this now a moment to reconsider and it made me think a lot about general idea when mm. i was prepping for this interview and about how general idea you always used what was to hand and you were always everything was self-motivated i think of file magazine and i'm thinking mm. of the, the artist books and everything like that it feels like that kind of work could be a route through this right oh yes absolutely publications are great that way and uh, I still continue to receive gifts of artist publications from artists. You know, every week, at least, I get a package of books from someone. It's a, it's a wonderful, it's kind of like the, the old mail art days of the 70s, except I'm receiving books rather than mail or zines, a lot of zines. And, uh, and socks, too. Today, I got a pair of hand-knit socks from Norway, <laughs> made by an artist's mother, apparently. <laughs> Well, not being claimed as an artwork, or is the artist sending it to you, claiming it as a found object? No, he he also sent me a watercolor, but uh, <laughs> but the socks are amazing, you know, traditional Norwegian socks. Uh, but uh, I'm in a way so glad not to have to be running from art fair to art fair right now. Uh, it's been uh, an incredible relief to not get on planes for a while. I'm I've been quite happy about it. At the same time, I'm nomadic by nature, so part of me is still itching to go somewhere. But, but, but it, you're right, it's really a time to rethink uh, the, the amount of running around the globe that we all do. I think it has to slow down or, or the globe will take its revenge on us, you know. So tell us then, this week is, on the one hand, it's Berlin Art Weekend happening for the first time, the Biennale is opening. Is, does it feel, you know, in the city, does there feel like a, a sort of an energy that you would describe as something approximate to what it was like pre-pandemic? Or do you feel, feel there's a sort of cautiousness about, about everything still? Cautious isn't exactly the right word. It feels like something from 20 years ago. The pace is slower, but it's not what you would describe as cautious or slow. Uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm and a lot going on, but it's not happening at that uh, reckless rate that was happening, uh, you know, in, in the end of last year. It's uh, it's more thoughtful and it's, uh, I really like it a lot, actually. I'm, of course, you know, I'm not, I'm not in my 20s, so it's a perfect rate for me.
Well, AA, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Okay, thank you. Studio Berlin is open now at the Berghain nightclub in Berlin. Check the website studio.berlin for more information. A bit later, we'll hear from Thomas Schulter about what it's like to be a gallerist in Berlin at this moment. But first, here are a few of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. The first bellwether report on the impact of COVID-19 on the gallery sector was published this week by Art Basel and UBS. As Annie Shaw and Anna Brady report, art sales dropped by an average of 36% in the first half of 2020, forcing dealers to cut their staff by a third, while 2% of galleries have closed permanently, a figure that's likely to grow significantly as rent relief dries up and economies tip into recession. But it's arguably art fairs that have been the trade's biggest casualty, and the new report, written by the economist Claire McAndrew, cast doubt on their resurgence in 2021. The US President Donald Trump took art from the residence of the US Ambassador to France during a 2018 visit, the same trip on which he reportedly cancelled an appointment to visit fallen First World War Marines, calling the dead soldiers suckers and losers. According to a recent report by Bloomberg, Trump took a bust of Benjamin Franklin and a set of silver figurines from the Ambassador's historic residence in Paris back to the White House without notifying the Ambassador, Jamie McCourt. And finally, Anna Brady writes that the gallery Hauser & Worth is employing new inventors, currently the chief executive of the London department store Fortnum & Mason as its first global chief executive. Venters will be based in London, and Ivan Worth says he and his wife Manuela will now be free to focus on the gallery's artists and relationships with clients. You can read these stories and much more on theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Christie's presents two exciting additions to its online-only auction calendar, both now open for bidding. Browse works by Henri Matisse, Andy Warhol, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Banksy and more in prints and multiples, London editions, comprised of three curated auctions devoted to the art of printmaking from the late 19th century to the present day. Picasso Ceramics is Christie's auction of edition ceramic pieces by Pablo Picasso, ranging from stunning decorated plates and bowls to more complex forms crafted by the artist. The refresh schedule complements Christie's private sales. Bid and buy art at any time and from anywhere. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, a reminder that you can catch up with Series 1 of the art newspaper's other podcast, A Brush With, featuring interviews with the artists Michael Armitage, Jenny Saville, Chantal Joffe and Rashid Johnson on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. We'll hear more about Berlin from Thomas Schulter in a moment, but first it's time for Work of the Week. The painter Jade Fadadutomi has a show opening in London next week and she's chosen an untitled 2016 painting by the US artist Laura Owens in the Tate Collection. The painting features a silk-screened image of an embroidery of a doll's house made by Owens' grandmother, over which are painted loose marks, many with grids overlaying them. You can see an image of the work at theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast link and look for this episode. Jade, when did you first see this untitled work by Laura Owens? I actually have to be completely honest with you. Um, when I was invited to the podcast, I took it as an opportunity to choose a work I wish I'd seen. <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't seen it. <laughs> but this is an, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? You know, because apart from anything else, it's a really powerful graphic image. You know, how much is its materiality actually seeing it in the flesh important? It's a, it's a curious question. I mean, I think as a painter, and um, I'm sure a lot of people might agree, that there's nothing compares to the 
in real life experience of painting to see the physicality of it to see the movement of it but I do think that you can be invited to painting through images and I think that that's how a lot of people um, are introduced to a lot of work Um, yeah. So what is it that you took from from this particular painting? I really wanted to use this as a space to talk about how how when we look at art you know that we've been taught so often to look at it in one way and we have you know and through an artist's way which comes through academia and I guess I wanted to share and open up especially because I teach that perspective is really important I wanted to celebrate the diversity and perspective of looking at art and how you know I think that often when we are conversing about art it follows a rhythm of of investigation and I think it can become quite intimidating for people and quite um and quite singular and quite narrow and you know my experience of growing up and not having that invitation to art so early on made me feel you know incapable and if anything through this journey through my short but very vibrant career so far um I've really learned to celebrate the diversity and perspective of looking and how when you look, if you allow that moment to be, you know, as shallow or as deep as you want it to be and as um, personal as you want it to be, you don't even have to understand necessarily why you're connecting to something. But, you know, you can ask any question. It can be as simple as, I love it because it's green and you start from there. I just think that the greatest experience of looking at other people's works is what it can reveal to you about how exponential language is and I believe art is an exponential language as well as your own personal language as an artist Um, so I really wanted to celebrate that and celebrate naivety because I don't think we talk about it enough I don't think that we spend enough time talking about the fact that anyone can look and anyone can understand themselves through looking if we allow ourselves to question that way as well. I'm always interested in the role that living artists play in uh, other living artists' lives, if you know what I mm. mean. So in, in the, the, our other podcast, A Brush With, I asked this question of all the artists, you know, which living artists do they most admire? Can you say something about Laura Owens as a, as a, as a, as a painter, as an artist, and, and what, you know, to what extent have you consistently looked at her? Is she a sort of an emblematic figure for you? I mean, I remember first... Um, seeing her work or engaging with it um, whilst I was studying at the Slade, um, doing my BA. So it was there that I was encouraged to look at art more in more depth, especially because I didn't come, or I don't come from a family that engages with art. So Slade was like my first um, invitation to the art world of sorts. Um, So I went to the library and I was looking through books. That was how I learned about most artists, was through photographic images first and I picked up a lot of her books and I remember the reason why I picked them up and I can recognize it now especially because of the way I I like to work is I was so stunned by the progression of her work you know to me I describe Laura Owen's work as something that hasn't stayed the same from it's really different she's really evolved she's really developed and that was something I kind of envied as a student or I wanted to be able to do that myself it was like I don't want to make paintings that look the same Um, And I think I remember she was the artist that put that first thought into my head um, in particular. 
That's interesting, isn't it? That that idea of some artists like to work on bodies of work which all look the same and have a consistency in terms of the the imagery or materiality or whatever, whereas others want to work on individual works which are in a way a sort of hermetic world of their own. And that, from my experience of your work, that that seems to be the kind of artist you are. Each work being in its individual yeah quality. I mean, I feel like I take it to an extreme. I think that um, there's definitely periods of Laura Owen's works that you know have a distinctive language, and I I do feel like my works also have, you know, for, I mean, I haven't really been going for that long publicly, <laughs> but with my new show, I'm hoping that it will like you know show a progression in my journey through my own work. But I almost became obsessed in a, I call it slightly unhealthy because <laughs> I'm quite hard on myself as to how my works separate from each other individually. It doesn't matter if I'm working towards one show, every painting has to have its own presence, its own identity, and they have to hold themselves. Yeah, so I took it to more of an extreme. I don't think that's necessarily um needed from an artist but it was definitely really important for me can you say in which ways you took it to a greater extreme um so for example i would the way i would end up working on my work would be i would work comparatively so if i'd noticed that you know i was working in a palette that was quite familiar then i'd be like oh you know what i've used pink too much no pink in the next painting or this looks, or this reminds me of something, so I'm going to make sure that the next painting is leaning less towards the figurative spectrum because I'm seeing that they are relating to each other a bit too much. I think that I trust that my language is there, so I don't think any jumps or leaps or how I describe the changes between my works are something to even um, doubt. I, I really embrace them, I really let my work become a place where I can challenge myself and challenge my language consistently and I'm always experimenting and it's something I heard from a tutor at the stage she was talking about I think it was Phoebe Unwin that said it to me um, when we were talking about how how do you experiment how do you push your work when you don't necessarily know in what direction you want to take it and she was the one that said you know sometimes to push your work all you have to do is disrupt your habits so I'm constantly trying to disrupt every habit even if it's only existed for one week it's still worth you know seeing what happens I I really feel like if you leave a space for something by taking taking whatever you were doing away then it you know you don't know what opportunity you could be creating by having to fill that space again. And so the experience of looking at this Laura Owens work for instance can you can you describe what you would bring from that into your own practice if if anything or or is Mm. it more of a kind of an attitude or a kind of a moral example you know that's what Matisse said about Cezanne that he, by looking at this Cezanne that he had every day mm. it, it kind of gave him the moral fortitude to push his art into new territory you know. I mean I think my introduction to Laura Owen's work gave me that same like moral fortitude to push my work as individual paintings but I think it's interesting what looking at other people's work can reveal about yourself and help you understand about your own language and your own practice. So, for example, when I look at um, this work called Untitled, which I know might not be helpful for many, but it's in the Tate collection. And it's, you know, at first first glance, it's the palette. Um, I can really relate to the palette on quite maybe an honest and quite innocent level just because green is my favorite color and I think that is a real valuable way to start looking at a work if you look and you stop 
um, I always try to question those moments and allow myself to rather than just say, oh, you know what, I like this work and that's it and move on. It's like, okay, why? And so then so then you're looking at the surface, then you're looking at the content. And I find it really interesting when I'm looking at her work because I talk a lot about the window and this work particularly, which you know has this kind of doll-like house where you can see into different rooms of the house. I, find it, I found it very interesting in relationship with how I see windows and paintings. So there's that relationship. And maybe if I go into that a bit more, um, when I think about the window, I think about how you can look at a window and, you know, three things can happen. You can look beyond the window and see the scene beyond, or you can see your own reflection. Or there's this wonderful moment where you're seeing both yourself and that scene beyond. And that kind of is almost a wonderful analogy for painting for me and how, you know, that scene beyond could be your desire and how it reveals the push and pull into how you almost become vulnerable when you, when you view your work. And then another thing that I find really fascinating about this particular work as well is almost the absence of people, apart from these little feet in the bathroom, um, <laughs> um, and just and the playful elements of you know the cats, the goldfish, and the kind of changes in resolution. So this back and forth, you have these really great. Uh, I hope I'm not doing her disservice by calling them blobs, but blob. <laughs> I think I think that a blob is is pretty descriptive of what they are. But you know these blobs on you know on the surface of the canvas that you know push everything into the um, into the background and. But also these windows where I don't know if if you've had a uh, look at like when you zoom in, because I've had to zoom in as I've looked on it at it digitally. um, The difference in pixel density is really interesting as well. And the digitalization of of paint, I find very interesting, even though I don't work like that myself. The fact that I'm able to connect with it. I think is a, is something to question and that's how I tend to work it's what can it reveal about the things I want for myself even if it's an abstract relationship with the work at first glance it's from this embroidery that connects it to a very personal you know to her grandmother and then you also have this element of these the blobs as you say these the, which could be pure abstraction but they have elements of perhaps vegetation about them but there's also this sort of sense in which you're very conscious of her process in sense of, you know, taking from a found object, translating it into a digital object, then making it a silk screen, so returning it to a kind of physical process. And then the overall appearance is quite digital, isn't it? And I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in to what extent in your paintings, it feels to me that those there are, the layering seems to be less, in a way, self-conscious than Laura Owens is here. Would that be fair? Actually, it's neither nor. I would say that when I am working and if we're talking about layering in particular, it is instinctual. It's it's something that I'm really interested in relationships of colour and colour in my life. The things that, you know, the choices I make are often governed by colour. So colour is, is something that is quite visually evident, I hope, to others. You know, a real core of my painting and... So how do you have a conversation with colour, you know, to have them converse with each other quite literally with layering? I feel like that is a conscious decision. But I also 
I'm also don't necessarily know what the end result's going to be. So it's always a surprise. Um, so there's always this like concoction of thought that's happening when I'm painting. It's like instinctually I want to just add a colour because it makes sense. And that's how, you know, how I organically think and how I naturally engage with the world. But at the same time, there's the decision that I know I'm making to investigate colour through that process. Does that make sense? <laughs> Well, Jade, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Jade Fadadutami's exhibition, Gesture, is at the Pippi Holdsworth Gallery in London from the 16th of September until the 31st of October. And she has a solo show at the ICA Miami in 2021. Now, Thomas Schulter has had a gallery in Berlin since 1991 and has witnessed the Berlin scene change immeasurably over that time, but never more so than when he and other gallerists were forced to shut their doors for months earlier this year because of the pandemic. Now he's opened two new shows of the Berlin-based artist Michael Muller as part of the Art Week and is showing in the Paper Positions Art Fair, one of the few art fairs to go ahead this year. So Berlin is faring better than most cities, it seems, but still there are problems. There's been much talk about gentrification and rent hikes forcing artists from the city. In April, Berlin State Museums announced the end of a loan agreement with the collector Friedrich Christian Flick in 2021. And in May, the city's Me Collectors Room, a showcase for Thomas Albrecht's private collection in the centre of the city, announced it had closed its doors permanently. I spoke to Schulter about the atmosphere in Berlin this week and more generally. Thomas, could you set the scene for us about what it's like in Berlin right now? Because we've had so many events cancelled this year. And I'm, I just want to get, gauge if there's a sort of energy about the city now that, that finally there is an event like this happening. Yeah, it's a strange sense of normalcy, I would say. I mean, there is uh, very little here that, other than people wearing masks wherever they go that would remind you of this not being normal Berlin Art Week, normal Berlin Gallery Weekend, and people are going to set up the fair. Um, there are openings tonight. There are um, There is an, a special opening for the, um, for the Art Week today. We have an opening of a show that one of our artists curated. We have uh, visitors coming in, and in a very good frequency, we've had a pre- opening party uh, here with about 25 people so you know it's all perfectly uh, normal in many many ways. Can you tell me something about you know what restrictions if any have been placed on you in terms of you know you talk about an opening with 25 people I'm talking to you right now as gatherings of more than six people have been halted in the UK so what kind of restrictions are you operating under in Berlin? I don't want to be completely incorrect, but I think that we are either allowed to let in one person per 20 square meters of uh, exhibition space or a gallery space altogether, and or um, allow one person per 10 square meters. I think that's the new rule. So that, that means that at any given point, we could have um, about 30 visitors in the gallery at 360 square meters if we have six people working in the offices. And I mean, that's 
you know, you don't need 150 for an opening or 200 in, at the same time. And I think we have all gotten used to that now. Right. And can you tell me something about who's coming? Because it, is it, is it, does it feel a much more local audience? I mean, obviously, Berlin is a very international city. So people living in Berlin are already very international. But are you sensing that people are coming from overseas specifically for the events of this week? Well, that's difficult to say because this week is, um, because it is uh, a Labor Day weekend always, it always has been a problem of this weekend that it was basically placed too early in a way. So we have never really had anybody who was not for some uh, challenge, by some chance already in Europe uh, that would come here has always been a criticism that I had for the show, uh, uh, thinking I always pledged for it being later in the year. Uh, but um, so we never really expected that, but we have people coming from other countries, we have people coming from Sweden, from wherever they are allowed to come. And uh, uh, so it feels good. I also have to say there is one very important thing that we have learned in the last months. I think that we have quite a lot of, first of all, in Germany, we have quite an active art market in Germany. The German art uh, 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 buyers are important in the world and um, so now they cannot necessarily uh, go anywhere. They um, will be here. So we do have a very strong uh, uh, collectorship that can now come to us. We feel that localizing, but you might be asking that question later on, has been to a certain degree uh, uh, a bit of a blessing too. Yeah, well, let's expand on that then. Tell me, tell me more about that localizing, because, I mean, it's, it's notable to me that you're showing a show by Michael Muller, who's a Berlin artist, for instance. And, and I wondered if, you know, how symbolic is that? you know, in terms of it's, it's this big event in Berlin, you're showing a, a major Berlin artist. Just, you know, tell me about that. Yes, the localization is one part of it. We have been, none of us were traveling until basically the um, beginning of July. Um, it was a possibility of actually getting in touch with my very professional and good colleagues here in Berlin. I mean, we have a, a group of 35 to 40 galleries that shows in Basel is one of the biggest contingents worldwide of any city. Basically, all of a sudden, I was talking to, at length, to people like Esther Schipper, Jochen Meyer, all the people who are actually traveling a lot, and um, to many other colleagues. And we were able to, first of all, um, form a group that was um, good to talk to the government here yeah, and to uh, uh, find the cultural minister very, very open to us and very open to the, those kind of professional uh, galleries. The um, minister will be able to um, announce a program of um, uh, support for the galleries for 60 million euros tomorrow. And she has been giving us another 3 million, uh, 2.5 million in additional funds for purchases through the government uh, that will be spent in 20,000 uh, euro uh, increments. And so mainly that means the beginning of the year, um, somewhere between 500 and 700 uh, galleries can receive um, uh, funding uh, for their exhibition program uh, for the first half of the year between 10,000 and 35,000 euros, which I think it'll be helpful. It doesn't, it's not that much but uh, uh, in many cases, but you feel it and it's um, shawl in the arm. And I think um, we're happy that we were able to get that dialogue started again, which was uh, relatively 
uh, which was there was a lot of silence between our our association and the government for many different um, personal reasons that um, and we were able to break that stalemate and uh, that is part of what happened now and um, I think we are able to reorganize on a very local level the uh, Berlin Art Dealers Association which is the only only regional association that exists in Germany and 30 of the really good galleries have joined that so between the gallery weekend which is a limited company that is not really a, a talking partner for the government we can now have all the galleries that are in the gallery weekend together but they're represented in a um, in an association that the government can talk to so for the next two, one, two years, we have our work cut out, but it has begun, and that's because of uh, this particular situation. Okay, well, Thomas, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you very much. Thomas Schulter's two exhibitions of the work of Michael Muller continue until the 31st of October and the Paper Positions Art Fair is on until this Sunday, 13th of September. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And please subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The producers of The Week in Art are Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to AA, to Jade, to Thomas and thank you for listening. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.